All right. Well, are you ready to get into the word today? Amen. 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 Come on, convince somebody else. Are you ready to get into the word today? Yes. All right. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to begin with a theme verse that we have taken out of this text for this entire series. Today we're in week four, but as you're finding your place in Ephesians chapter four, I want you to stand with me just one more time. You're going to get to sit for the rest of the service. So I want you to stand with me if you can. If not, we understand. Stay comfortably seated. But we're going to just honor this word that we're asking God to speak over the life of our church this month. And the word is in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 24. This is Paul's prayer. And we're going to let it be our prayer today. So if we're going to put, we can put that on the screen. I want everybody to be able to see it. If you have a Bible or if you don't, let's read it out loud together. Are you ready? Go. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him, to him, there it is, to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Let me just say while you stay standing for a moment that there is only one way that God can receive more glory in this generation. I mean, when you look at what's going on in our world, it's hard in the natural to believe that Jesus could actually be more glorified in this generation because it seems like it's just less and less glorious when you read the headlines and live by the evening news. But there is one way that Jesus can receive more glory in this generation through the church. And the key is right in the middle of that prayer. It's this, according to his power that is at work within us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us. Good ideas won't do it. Good sermons won't do it. How many of you know we need the Holy Spirit's help? So right now, let's pray and ask. Father God, we ask you right now for the Spirit of God to settle into this place, God, Give us ears to hear your word. Give us hearts to respond to what your spirit is saying to the church. Jesus, be glorified in and through our lives like never before. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 You can be seated. We're going to jump right into this text today. I want to just emphasize at the very onset how critically important it is that the Holy Spirit has his part in the process of what we're going to be looking at. Last thing I would want is for anyone to come and hear the word of God and to think that the message of the gospel is just try harder, be better, do more. No, everything that God wants to do, he wants to do according to his mighty power that is at work in them that believe. Jesus said it like this. He said in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We cannot usurp the process. We need God's power in our life if we're going to be who he's called us to be. Now, now, when I talk about the power of God, let me just tell you my my upbringing, my angle. I've grown up in the Pentecostal church. And so a lot of the emphasis with the power of God has been focused on the initial 
physical evidence of receiving that power, namely the gifts of the Spirit in operation. Now, we love the gifts of the Spirit. We talked about those a little bit last Sunday. But let me say there's something more important than the initial physical evidence of the Holy Spirit's power. And that is the enduring physical evidence. How many of you understand that the Holy Spirit wasn't sent so that we could have an incredible experience with God at an altar? No, the Holy Spirit came so that we could live lives that have been altered. By the Spirit of God. He didn't come to give us spiritual goosebumps, to give us just great services or great worship experiences. The Holy Spirit came to empower us to live a Christ-centered and Christ-exalting life. So we need to understand that at the very onset of what we're going to get into today. Because Paul is communicating to us throughout this book of Ephesians the implications of the gospel. The first implication of the gospel is in the spirit realm. And we began in Acts chapter 1. The Bible says that when you are saved, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, immediately you are translated out of darkness and into light. The Bible says that, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That means if you just got saved in the worship service today, you never served Jesus a day in your life, and you just made a decision to follow him immediately, right now, you are as saved as you'll ever be. I can't be more saved than anybody else. And so that's the spirit work of salvation. That's the spirit. You're saved in the moment. But Paul, after explaining that, he goes a little farther. And how many of you know that God does even more? I mean, if he didn't do more than just save us from our sins, that'd be enough. But he does more. And so in the next chapter, Paul begins to describe the relational implications of the gospel. He's saying not only has God positioned you in the heavenly realms with Christ, he has positioned you in the body of Christ. And second uh, chapter of Ephesians says that God has torn down the barrier wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, and between every other ethnic or racial division that there might be. In Christ, we're one body. Amen? Amen. That's the relational impact of the gospel. But now we're moving into chapter four, and Paul's saying one more time, there's more. He's saying one more time that Jesus has done more than just reconciled you in a relationship with God and reconciled you with the body of Christ. But he's saying now that there are also ethical and moral implications to this gospel. This gospel that saved you wants to do a work in your life, not just for our blessed assurance one day in heaven, but right now, today. There's something that God wants to do in our lives. So as we begin to unpack this text together, you're going to see very practically some of the things that the Apostle Paul says that these are to be the, the, character, the characteristics and the nature of God's people. If you're there in chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 17. And Paul picks up here on the theme of verse 1. We read last week, verse 1, he said, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. That's what he's talking about right now in verse 17 when he says these words. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. How many of you know we just jumped in the deep end this morning? I mean, he's not mincing words. Paul says, look, God has done something incredible in your life in reconciling you with God. He's done miracles in reconciling the body of Christ. Now you need to begin to understand that he's done more than that. He's done something to so transform and renew your mind and your thinking that you're going to live your life completely counterculturally. So he says, in no uncertain terms, you must no longer... No longer, he says, live like the world lives. There's something that, that changes in the life of a believer. Now, now, understand what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying that everybody who is not saved fits this description. N not everybody that is unsaved or lost in the world is living in impurity. In fact, I've discovered it be, to be true that Sometimes the hardest people to witness to are good people. You know, I mean, when somebody's ruined their life and they feel like they're in the bottom of the pit and there's nowhere to go but up and you give them the hope of Christ, that person's eager for a lifeline. But I've discovered that when I come into contact with people that they live a good life, they have a great job, they've got a, a happy home, and they're ethical and moral people, it's difficult sometimes to, to convince that person that they are in need of a savior. So Paul is not saying that everybody that doesn't know God is an evil or a wicked or an impure person, but here's what he is saying. He's saying that this is the direction that every life and every society is going to go towards without the influence of Christ. This, this is the, the way the current of the world is pulling. And so he begins to talk about that worldly way. And he says in verse 18, there is ignorance in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Verse 19 says they've lost all sensitivity. And the word that is translated as hardening of their hearts is the word for callous. You ever got a callous before? Calluses are not always something that you try to get necessarily, but it's something that's developed through constant friction. You, you just, after having constant friction, you realize, wow, there's, there's a callus there. And, and if that callus continues to develop, maybe you do the same job the same way day in and day out. After a while, it becomes hardened so much so that, that it loses sensitivity. And Paul is saying that is what happens in the hearts of people that are far from God. That they've, they've lost sensitivity to the things of God and to the, to the word of God. Now, now I, I've heard people ask this question before, wondering theologically, how can, how can a good God send good people or innocent people to hell? Maybe you've thought of that question before. 
The problem with asking the question, how can a good God send innocent people to hell, is the assumption that there are innocent people. Do you understand what Paul is talking about here when he says that these people have been separated from God? The reality is each and every one of us are born with a consciousness of God, an awareness that that he is. Maybe you don't have a full clarity and revelation of the word of God, but if you're living and breathing on this earth, the Bible says in Romans 1.20 that you are without excuse because his divine nature is evident all around you, that there is a God in heaven. The danger of of forming spiritual calluses on our heart is that we can get to the place where we no longer feel the, the guilt and the sting of conviction. When, when we do something that it is not right, something that shouldn't be done, people can slowly become hardened to that God consciousness and awareness to the point that they become shockproof. That all of a sudden nothing Nothing really bothers them. And it's like a spiritual leprosy. You know, if you've ever seen a leper colony, you you might see people that are missing fingers or an ear or a nose or toes. They're they're missing the extreme extremities. And and a lot of times the misconception is that it's because their flesh is rotting off. That's actually not the case. The condition is that they have become numb. And, and, And pain though it is difficult, can sometimes be your ally. Because when you feel something and it's hot, your finger tells your mind it's hot and you pull your hand back. But when you become numb, you become insensitive to what may hurt you. And so a leper just begins to damage themselves and injure themselves and hurt themselves. And that's the way it is in the heart of a person that's become callous toward God. I believe St. Augustine was right when he said the penalty for sin is sin. In other words, the worst thing that God could do sometimes is to just let you have the desires of your heart, to let you have the desires of your sinful nature. God wants you to experience freedom, more freedom, even today than what you've ever had before. And if we're going to have more freedom, then what we have to have is more feeling. We have to have a, a tenderness in our heart towards God and toward his character and his desire for us. I want you to know today, as we get into this text, this is probably the the most challenging part of the book of Ephesians. This is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to how we flesh this thing out. There's some challenging things in this, and and before we dive into any of the details of it, I, I I want you to understand the why. As I was praying for you this week and I was saying, God, help me to just unpack this truth to the church. I just sense that there's a lot of people, even in Christendom today, that would hear all of what I'm about to say and they would just say, it doesn't matter. And the reason some people would say it doesn't matter is because there has been a distortion of the grace of God in the church. I want you to hear my heart today. There is something to be lost through sinful living. See, the distortion of God's grace says this, that because God forgave my sins, past, present, and future, and I'm a child of God, then it doesn't matter how I live my life. 
It doesn't matter what I do. In fact, there's nothing I could do that would cause me to lose my right standing with God. I believe the Bible communicates that's absolutely a false hope. And the scripture oftentimes that would be used to support that thought is Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And I've talked to people before that have said, you know, it it doesn't matter what sin I committed doesn't matter how I live my life because I got saved when I was a kid. I gave my life to Jesus and Jesus said no one can snatch me out of his hand. Well, let me tell you, I do believe that we can have eternal security. I believe that you don't have to live in fear that if, if you don't run to the altar before Jesus comes back and you've committed a sin, that that, that last act of sin is going to be to your detriment. I I believe you can have security in your faith. Now, when I was a kid, I I believed that Jesus forgave all of my sins in the past, all of my past sins, because I had confessed them. But, But I struggled to think that God could forgive my future sins. But then I got to thinking about it. And the reality is when Jesus died for my sins 2,000 years ago, all my sins were future sins. I hadn't committed any of them yet. And so God's grace is great enough to forgive all of my sins. But the danger is when I believe that not only do I have uh, eternal security, but that I have unconditional eternal security. See, I just just simply believe that that God doesn't speak in idle words. I believe if there's a warning in the Bible, we should heed that warning. I, I I don't believe that the scripture employs scare tactics to just threaten us. So if there's a warning in God's word for the people of God, how many of you believe we ought to lean into that? We ought to heed that warning. So hold your place there in Ephesians chapter 4. Because I want to go for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I mentioned last week in the message that the, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So I want to look at an illustration here that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. It's a warning out of God's Word. It says this in verse 1, For do, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. He said all that to say these people were God's people. All those things that he mentioned there, they were metaphors and Old Testament types of our salvation. So in the same way that we're saved, he said these were God's people. Verse 5, look at it. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples. Why? To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So he says, look, these things are written down to warn us. 
Look at some of the things that are warnings to us. Verse 7 says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up and they indulged in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. What is Paul doing? He's showing us in the word of God a context for people that were the people of God, but they didn't live like the people of God. And he says in verse 11, very clearly, these things happen to them as examples, and they were written down as a warning for us on whom the culmination of the age has come. And then he gives us this caution. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, I don't think the Bible would tell us to be careful that we don't fall if falling was not a possibility. I don't say that to scare anyone. I say it to emphasize what I believe Paul is trying to communicate to the church. That when Jesus saves your life, he wants to transform your thinking and your behavior. And he wants you to live a life that is separate and set apart from the life of this world. The Bible word for what we're talking about is sanctification. One of God's attributes is holiness. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1 and 15, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. And so Paul begins to unpack this in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 4. Look there with me. He says that, speaking of those who have calloused hearts and have been separated from God, that, however, is not the way that you have learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul, again, he's writing to this church that that he started, and he says, this is not the way that you're to live. That's the way that some live, but you're not to live that way. And do you know why he could say that? He said, you've learned a better way, because in Acts chapter 19, that's when Paul went to Ephesus to preach. We learned that he stayed there for about three years. So Paul was the pastor, and he said, look, you learned a better way. You know better. You were taught differently than the way that they're acting. So there's an important distinction that we have to make. First of all, we need to understand that he's not talking to unsaved people. He's not talking to lost people. Don't don't take this text today and, and go talk to folks that don't know anything about God, don't have a relationship with God, never been saved, and then start to point out all the things that they're doing wrong that Paul's about to cover. He's talking to the church, amen? Amen. This is a word to the church. 
You know, a lot of times we get frustrated because lost people act like lost people. That's like getting mad that a duck quacks. Lost people are going to do what lost people do. So don't get frustrated that they act the way the world acts. You know, you should never expect something out of someone that isn't in them. And and we got to extend that grace to new believers as well. You got to remember how far you've come. Some of you that have been serving the Lord for a long time, we forget where we've come from. And we can start looking at other people in frustration because they're not living right or they're not acting right or they're not talking right. And we can forget the process of sanctification that God's had us on. But as the spirit of Christ dwells in a man or dwells in a woman, it it will begin to have fruit in their life. Their attitude, their actions will begin to change. And Paul is saying, look, I taught you guys for three years. And so you know better than to act in these ways. You know, the philosophy of the world simply says to us, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is wicked above all else. Who can know it? The world says to us, you know what? Just just be true to yourself. Follow those inner desires. After all, you were born that way, so just pursue the inner desires. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says you were born in sin. You were born in iniquity, so you need to crucify your flesh. You need to crucify that sinful nature and be made new in Christ Jesus. The way that Paul describes it, he says there's some things that you got to put off and there's some things that you got to put on. And let me say this about walking in holiness and walking in sanctification. You can't become holy by subtraction. You don't become holy by just saying, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm not going to go to that place. No, you can't just become holy by subtraction. And so there's some things very specifically that Paul's about to get into. I mean, he's about to ruffle some feathers here. He's going to say, you got to stop doing that. But for everything he says, put off, there's something else that he wants us to put on. Here in these verses, he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new man. And I want to just read down through the list of things. And I want you to do something as I read through these, just ask the Holy Spirit in this moment, if he would just speak to you. Maybe as we read through this list from verse 25 down to the end of the chapter, there may be something that you just sense the Holy Spirit's calling for a wardrobe change. And you know what? This this is an area of your life that, that I want more of my glory in you. And so you need to Put this off and and put this on. Look at it with me. We'll just read down through some of these and I'll comment as we go. Verse 25, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He says, put put on truthfulness. Don't, Don't lie anymore. Don't be deceptive anymore. You've learned better than that. You have a different nature than that. Put on truthfulness. Verse 26, he says another one. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. 
So this is what we're to, to put off. Now, he did say in your anger, don't sin. So that, that means you can be angry and not be in sin. Anger is not a sin. In fact, I would say it's a sin not to be angry about some of the stuff that goes on in our world. Apathy is a terrible condition. We ought to be angry about some of the things that are happening in our world. But he said, you can be angry and not sin. And, and the, the solution, he says, is don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't, don't let it fester. Don't become bitter. Don't become resentful. Don't become hateful. So put off holding on to a grudge. Put off unforgiveness. Don't let the sun go down on it. Deal with it. Deal with it so that we can overcome anger. And then the next one, he says, verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Now, come on, that, was, that one's low-hanging fruit, right? We all, we all knew that one, was, that one wasn't right. We should probably stop stealing when we get saved, right? <laughs> but he's not just talking about taking something from someone that isn't theirs. We think about it. Stealing could be a, a lack of integrity, even on the, not on the taking in, but you may, be, you may be overselling something, not giving somebody its full value, taking something that doesn't belong to you. It might not be something uh, tangible, but it might be something that's not rightly yours, a position, a title. He says, don't steal any longer, but you must work doing something useful with your own hands. Now listen to why. So that they may have something to share with those in need. In other words, he's saying, look, you put off stealing. But I'm not saying put on hard work. It's more than that. He's saying, don't steal, work hard so that you have something to give to those in need. What he's saying to put on is generosity. You gotta have a spirit of generosity about you. To not want to take what's not rightfully yours, but to want to give to those that don't have anything. That's what we put on, a spirit of generosity. And then the next verse says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. Don't be critical. Don't be condemning. Be an encourager. Be a lifter. Verse 30, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Spirit of God? We grieve the Spirit by, by not responding to his conviction, by not responding to the Spirit-prompted impulses to do right. When we allow our hearts to be calloused, as Paul said, to the voice of the Spirit, we begin to grieve His Spirit. We ignore His voice. We shut Him out. Then in the last verse, He just kind of just kind of peppers the whole crowd. It's like a shotgun blast. He says, in, in case I missed you, here comes a bunch more. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. And then in place of those attitudes, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. This salvation that Christ has given us calls us to do something. He didn't say, God's going to put these things off. He said, you put it off. 
You put this off and and you put on the mind of Christ. And I want to say to you today that sometimes putting things off that are ungodly in our life, sometimes it has to be practical. It's not just a decision that you make in a church service on a Sunday morning. Sometimes there has to be a literal separation from an old way, from an old pattern in your life. And, And the context for that statement is Ephesus. If you look in Acts chapter 19, you see that Paul was there preaching in Ephesus and miracles were happening. I mean, supernaturally, God was healing people. People were getting saved and the conviction of the Holy Spirit was falling on that city. So much so, the Bible says that in Acts chapter 19, verse 18, it says, many of those who believed that got saved. They now came and they openly confessed what they had done. This is behaviors we're talking about. Not what they had thought, not what they believed. They confessed what they had done. How many of you know the Bible does say confession is good for the soul? It says this, listen to what they did. Verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, one drachma is about a day's wage. So imagine the impact this had on the community, that they came to faith in Jesus and they opened their hearts and lives to salvation. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to convict them about what they were doing. These people were involved in witchcraft, in sorcery, in black magic. They were involved in all kinds of of occultic and demonic practices. And now the conviction of the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of them. And so they just bring all of their paraphernalia, all of the the scrolls, all of their their books and their incantations. and, And they bring it and they set a big bonfire in the town. To the tune of 50,000 drachmas. Now, now I did the math. Based on the national average day's wage today, if if we were to have that kind of a revival and we were to just take all of our ungodly things and burn them in a big pile and say, we want nothing to do with our old way anymore, the value of that bonfire would be $6.1 million. I'm telling you, sometimes freedom costs something. Too many times people have come to an altar or come to a moment in their relationship with God and said, God, I just want to be done with my old life. I want to be done with the addiction. I want to be done with the bondage. I want to be done with that old way of thinking. I want to be done with the vices that have held me back. I want freedom. And God gives them freedom, but they don't change their walk. They don't change their surroundings. They don't change their influence. They don't get rid of the things in their life that keep pulling them back. And sometimes setting some things and putting them off requires that we literally go home and clean the closet out. And then we say, God, I'm done. I'm done with that lifestyle. I'm done with those things that used to hold me down. And in the next verse in Acts 19 says, this is the result. And this is why God wants this for his church. It says in verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in 
power. See, God receives more glory from his church when we walk in his power, when we receive more of his presence in our life and more of his character. He receives more glory through the church. And so, so Paul, now jumping into chapter 5 of Ephesians, kind of summarizes all that he's saying here with this statement. He says in verse 1 and 2, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow God's example. Live a life purity. Be holy as he is holy. Now, if you don't like chapter four, you're not going to like chapter five. I'm just going to tell you right up front. Paul does not let off the gas one bit. In fact, in chapter five, he doesn't just say you shouldn't live like the Gentile world lives. In chapter five, he says, he says there's some things happening in the culture that you should not even have a hint of. I mean, I'm not just saying don't play in the fire. I'm saying don't even smell like smoke. Like, I don't even want you to have a hint of this stuff in your life. I want you to look with me at just a couple of the verses that highlight how serious he is. Look at verse seven in chapter five. Paul says, therefore, do not be partners with them. He's saying cut ties. Don't, don't walk in the path of the wicked, Psalm 1 says. Don't be partners with him. Look down at verse 11. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Have nothing. To, and then verse 12, he says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Now hold on to your horses because we're going to look at a couple of these things. What is he talking about? in this culture that the church is supposed to be so different than. Verse three, go back to the top with me. Verse three, he says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. All three of those words, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, are, are, can all be taken in the context of sexual sin. Greed in the context of sexual sin. You know, one of the biggest questions in over 16 years of youth ministry that oftentimes came up when we were talking about serving the Lord with young people was, how far is too far? I mean, that's the question that they want to know. I mean, we, we know what the Bible says, you know, that we're supposed to save sex for marriage, but how far is too far? How far can I, can I go and still be in good graces with God? And can I just tell you today that Satan would love for the church to believe that sexual immorality only has to do with sex outside of marriage. It would love for us to believe that. But the Greek word for sexual immorality is a word, pornea. Probably sounds familiar in our language. Pornea is a word kind of like the word trash. If I say trash, I could be describing any kind of garbage. And so the word pornea describes any kind of sexual immorality. It might be, it might be 
sex outside of marriage. It may be lustful thoughts. It could be pornography or, or visual stimulation. It could be anything that falls under the category of sexual immorality. See, the Ephesians lived in a Greek society that was openly approving of prostitution and homosexuality. That was the culture that they lived in. I mean, it, it wasn't just something that people kind of turned their head. No, it was, it was a part of the fabric of society. In fact, in this time frame that Paul writes, in Athens, there was a temple that was erected to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And people would go and they would worship there. And, and the money that was raised to build that temple was raised by building it, by opening brothels in the city. So that there's a corruption in this culture that, that Paul is writing to. In fact, in, in this Greek culture, homosexuality was associated with having high moral standards in other areas of their lives. Now, to be honest, if I had said that on a Sunday morning 30 years ago, that might have shocked some folks. But it's not a far cry from our culture today. That pop culture calls courageous and brave those things that the Bible calls depravity. And we look at it and we say, wow, what a high standard, what a brave person, what a moral person or a courageous person. So Paul, you know, we, we, read, we read this stuff and here's the temptation to go, oh, you know what, that's, that's just law. Like that's, that's, we live under grace today. That's the law. Or, or we say, you know what, that was for first century. That, that, that doesn't apply in the 21st century. Really? Because it sounds like it could have been written last week. The culture that Paul was writing to was just like ours. And the reason it was just like ours is because the sinful nature is the same in every generation. Doesn't matter what the culture is or what the technological advances are, sin is sin and it lives in all of us because we're all Adam's seed. And we all have the same sinful nature on the inside of us. So how, how do we respond then to, to these truths? How, how do we, do we just say, ah, well, let's just bend the truth. Let's just try to fit it in and be more palatable with our culture. Do, do we meet somewhere in the middle? Remember, Paul is talking to Christians about their lifestyle. Resist that religious spirit that wants to start thinking about other people and their lifestyle. Lost people do what lost people do. Paul is saying, hey church, talking to you. And he says in verse six, here's what to do. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. See, there's a, there's a lot of confusion in the church because these issues are so difficult to talk about and, and it's just so much easier to, to just buy into the empty words. We would rather just all, you know, come together and have a kumbaya experience. The truth is, he says, don't have any part with it. In other words, what you, what you used to see that made you recoil, 
Why? Because it was wrong. Because it was the, the nature of God in you that knew it was wrong. Nobody had to tell you it was wrong. It was wrong. But you've walked with it. You've partnered with it. You've journeyed with it so much that you're unfazed by it. You're no longer sensitive in the areas you used to be sensitive. You're, you're callous because you laugh at the comedy on television. Because you've just walked with it. And it's become so socially acceptable that it's acceptable in the church. Paul's saying some hard things to the church here. He's reminding them, though, how far the gospel takes us. The gospel does so much more than just put your name in the Lamb's book of life as if that wasn't enough. No. Look at verse 8. He says, you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And verse 10 says, and find out what pleases the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to find out what pleases the Lord. Now notice Paul didn't say the wrath of the church is coming on those who live in disobedience. Verse 6 says God's wrath. God's the judge, not us. I don't, have, I, don't have to, I don't have to judge anyone for their sin. What I have to do is be careful that I don't allow myself to become calloused to the Holy Spirit because of becoming comfortable and complacent with the sin of the culture. That's what Paul's writing to. He's saying, look, you are surrounded by a world that is living contrarily to my word. Be careful. Don't have part in it. You used to be in darkness. You're not that way. Put off that thinking. Put on Christ. Find out what pleases the Lord. What pleases the Lord. It's, it's far easier to just talk about grace that saves us. But can I tell you what I'm preaching to you today is biblical grace. This is biblical grace. It's grace that saves us. That's Ephesians 1. It's also serving grace. It's Ephesians 2. That God graces us with gifts and the ability to express his glory through our diverse personalities and talents and gifts. That's serving grace. But it's also sanctifying grace. Titus says the same grace that saves us teaches us how to say no to sin. That's the sanctifying grace of God. It's the work that he's doing in our hearts. It's the process that we're all on. That's why as a church, our mission statement is to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. That's why we're not just committed to leading people to salvation. It's not enough to just pray a prayer and say, okay, I prayed the prayer, now I'm good. No, there's something that God has for you in this lifetime. And the process of getting to that place is called sanctification. It's something that God works out in our lives. And so Paul is encouraging the church here to live differently. And he ends this whole section, and we'll end here today, with giving this admonition. In chapter, or verse 15, he says this to the church. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. 
because the days are evil. Let me just say, you could save yourself a whole lot of heartache and a whole lot of headaches by asking this question, is it wise? Don't ask, is it okay? Don't even ask, is it wrong? Is it wise? Because the Holy Spirit wants to, to lead you into truth. And if we would just say, God, is this the wise thing? And a second question, to say, God, is this the best use of my time? He said, don't act as unwise, act as wise and make the most of every opportunity. Say, God, is this, I mean, if today's my last day, if I only have another 24 hours to serve you, is this the best way to do it? Because there's a lot of things that we can get ourselves into trouble in doing it. And it's not about right or wrong. It's about wise and unwise. It's about wasting the opportunity that God has given us. And so one more time before we get out of this chapter, Paul gives us another example. He says, I want you to be wise, not unwise. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, verse 18 says, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What is Paul saying? He's saying, don't be unwise. Don't waste people, people that just live for the weekend, people that just live to get wasted. The problem is that's exactly what they're doing. They're wasting. They're wasting their time. They're wasting their resources. They're wasting their opportunity. He says, make the most of your opportunity. Don't be unwise. Don't be drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit of God. He's calling us upward. He's calling us upward. Hear this today. The call of the Spirit is never a spirit of condemnation. The Spirit of God always calls us upward in Christ Jesus, always towards more, always toward, towards who you can be and what God intended you to be. It's not a condemning word. It's Paul saying, look, God has so much more that he wants for you. I'll close with this thought. In John chapter 11, one of Jesus' dear friends, Lazarus, became sick and he died. Many of you know the story. Four days later, Jesus shows up in Bethany where Lazarus is buried. And he goes to the tomb. Everyone's crying. And even Jesus himself, the Bible says, begins to weep. But then the word tells us that Jesus spoke in a loud voice and he called out, Lazarus, come out. And a miracle of miracles happens. The Bible says the dead man began to, began to walk out of the tomb. I want you to look at the verse. It says the dead man came out and his hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth was around his face. He was wearing grave clothes. In other words, he was wearing clothes that were fitting for a dead man. But Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And if you can just get this picture in your mind today, I think it's a picture of what a lot of Christians are living like. Jesus has already spoken a word of life. Come out, 
Be saved. You used to be in darkness, now you're in light. You used to be dead, now you're alive in Christ, and you've come into the salvation, but you still are wrapped in linen. You still have your face covered. You're still in grave clothes. And there's more for you that God has. There's another dimension of freedom. And so the Lord is just saying, take off the grave clothes. There's some things you have to put off, and there's some things you need to put on if you're going to live a victorious life in Christ. That's what he has for you and I. And I want to pray for you today that God would do by his spirit something that only the Holy Spirit can do in this moment. As we began this service, we read Ephesians 3.20 that says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could think or ask or imagine. When is he able to do it? Now. Now to him who is able. And I just believe that God wants to set some people free today from their grave clothes. Maybe some bondage that's been in your life. Maybe something that's held you back. Maybe something in the natural, an addiction, a struggle. Maybe it's a a mindset anger or malice or obscene talking. There's so many things that that Paul lists here. We all find ourselves in the struggle in some of those areas because we all have the same sinful nature. But whatever it is that the Spirit of God is speaking to you about today, I believe he's going to give you the power to take it off. I want to pray for you. Would you bow your head with me all over this room? Father, right now, we just invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to come in and to speak to our hearts and lives according to your power, Jesus, that is at work in us. Thank you, God, that you call us out of death and into life. You called us out of our grave. You called us to freedom to fullness of life. And so God, today I pray that you would begin to set people free from their old self. Set people free from bondage. God, my prayer today is that every person, every person that is a follower of Jesus Christ today would take one step closer from where they are to where God wants them to be. God, our heart's desire is that you would receive more glory in the church, in our generation. So Lord, by your spirit right now, begin to just burn away the impurities. God, anything in us that does not honor you, anything in us that doesn't exalt you, anything, Lord, that we've tolerated in our life, that is causing friction with your Holy Spirit, anything in us that's causing a a spiritual callus to develop. God, if there's things that we used to feel conviction about, and God, today we're, we're more comfortable with, things that would separate us from you, God, today, make it so clear. Make it so clear that we would have the boldness and the courage to do whatever necessary to put off those things that are not of you. God, even if we have to leave this place today and do something literally 
like the Ephesians did. If we have to get rid of an old collection, if we have to stop going to certain places, if we have to cut off specific relationships we're in partnership with, God, whatever we have to do, by your spirit, God, empower your church to be a glorious bride. It stands as a light and a city on a hill. God, be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I want to ask.